So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jamie, and I lead the student ladies here at Shofar Rondebosch. <laughs> um, I work for the church, and I'm married to Armand, the guy that was leading worship. He's great. We're almost married for a year now. <laughs> um, I'm super excited to be um, sharing um, with you today. Um, it's part of the Worship Unfiltered series that we're currently doing at church. Um, and worship is something that I'm particularly passionate about. It's, it's really what I really desire for every person to just really encounter God in worship. That is my heart. That is my passion, amongst other things. But I believe God has called us to be worshipers, not just the band on stage. I believe every single person is called to worship God. Um, and my sermon title today is The Father Seeks True Worshippers. Um, but we'll see where that goes. <laughs> Um, so I was thinking in the week, such a human, like kind of na like, like nature of ours to actually want to worship. There's always something that we want to worship. If it's not God, then it's something else. Um, everyone literally worships. So it's, it's something that makes us actually human, that we actually worship or we desire to worship. Um, we get Muslims who worship Allah. We get Hindus who worship Krishna. You get atheists who worship themselves. You get people who worship money, um, power. There's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that people worship. But when we think about the concept of worship, what exactly is worship? Right? It sounds like such a... It's obviously, we see it in the, in the Bible, but it's quite a broad kind of definition. We talk about it. We talk about like, oh, as Christians, we need to worship God. But do we really know what that means? Um, and we see in the Bible, there's three sort of like primary elements of what kind of, of what worship actually is. Um, and that's humility, reverence, and service. Now, humility is one of the most common words that is found in both the Old and New Testament. Um, it, it means to revere, to bow down, or, and to prostrate before somebody in worship, in humility. Um, and the Hebrew and the Greek word also denotes the act of bowing or prostrating oneself in submissiveness and reverence towards something. Um, humility is an outward posture that is reflected um, by an inward attitude of humility towards God. Um, and what's so cool about this is that it actually esteems God as being perfect and we as imperfect. Hallelujah. That just makes me feel great. <laughs> that Jesus is perfect. And that we can come and worship a perfect God in our imperfectness. It's like when we, in, when we come into humility before God, we're saying, God, you are perfect and we are not. Um, and then the next word is reverence. And reverence speaks about the fear of the Lord, but not like a terror and dread kind of scare you in the middle of the night kind of fear. Um, it speaks about a wonder and an awe and a reverence to the majesty and greatness of who God is. Um, and the same thing when we come to in reverence before God, that is, we become so much aware of our finiteness. We become so aware of our sinfulness because God is infinite and He's perfect, right? And then the last one is um, service. So the Hebrew and Greek word here as well denotes something to work, to labor, or to serve. So we see this in, in the Old Testament. We see that service was kind of um, 
de or delegated rather to the priestly kind of people, the, the Levites. Um, so it was something that they did. They took care of the temple. They kind of did all the priestly kind of duties. It was their service. But what we see in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 verse 5 is that now we all are priests. It says you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So now we see that change from where there was a select group of people that were kind of held the priestly duties or, the, or did the priestly services at the temple and stuff because now God says that we are a priest. We are a priestly nation. We are a holy nation. So now the service is not just limited to the Levites. It's actually to every single person in the congregation here because we all are priests before God. Um, and it's no surprise, like if you look in the New Testament, when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, he says, you must bow down and worship me, right? So what Satan was doing was he wasn't just saying, yeah, come and just, you know, bow down and worship me. He was actually wanting Jesus to, um, to acknowledge his sovereignty, as in Satan's sovereignty, and to fall down and to surrender to him. He, he was asking more than just come and worship me. Um, and that's why when Jesus responds, when, when, when obviously Satan makes this um, statement or this invitation, Jesus says um, in Luke chapter 4 verse 8, it says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Why? Because worship and service are so integrated. They go hand in hand. You can't have worship or isolated from actually serving because it's an outflow thing that happens when we worship God. And then it, for it to be true worship as well. Therefore, if you can define worship from what I, all the things that I said, it means that therefore we can, it's, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I'll just read from there. Worship is the humble response of regenerate men or women, those in relationship with God, with Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, to the self-disclosure revealing of the Most High God. Now, what that simply means is that worship is our response when God reveals himself to us. We cannot worship unless God is revealed to us because then what are we worshiping, you know? And what's so cool about wor like worship is that it is based solely on the work of God. It's got nothing to do with what we can bring or what we can do or how great we are, how great we prophesy and all these things. It's solely on the work of God and is achieved through the activity of God as in God says, draw near to me and I will go draw near to you. He's the initiator of our worship. Um, and worship is also directed to God. And obviously we express that in different forms and things like that. But today what I want to talk about is, it's one of actually, well, that's just like an introduction to what actually worship is, just so that we're all on the same page. Um, but one of my favorite passages in scripture um, is John 4. It talks about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I love the story. Um, it's such an interesting kind of conversation between Jesus and this woman, um, the Samaritan woman. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. So you're just going to have to bear with me. And then we're going to kind of get into it. Because there's something that I believe God is wanting to, to show us through the scripture. Um, yes. Okay. So John chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was and who it is that is saying to you, Give me water, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us as well and drank from it himself, as did, the son, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then the woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And, you, and the one you have and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. God, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who must worship Him, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am him. Long passage. <laughs> but before we even start to tackle the scripture, there's something very important that we need to understand is the context surrounding um, John 4. So obviously, we re if you go chapter before that, it's John 2 and 3 where um, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and he's, we, 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 he asks him, how can, I, how can I be born again? And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, um, well, you have to be born again. You have to be born, of the w born again. And then Nicodemus is like, but uh, how must I be born again? Must I go into my mother's womb? That's not going to happen. And then Jesus is like, no, no, but you have to be born of the water and of the spirit. So we see that happening. And then um, in the beginning of the scripture, we also see that the Pharisees were, were, have, were hearing, hearing that Jesus was baptizing people in the area, but it actually wasn't him. It was actually his disciples. So this is where we pick up. Um, and what's very important here is in verse 4, it says, so obviously he was leaving because obviously the Pharisees knew or thought that he was baptizing people. So he had left um, to go to Galilee. And then it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? It doesn't say 
doesn't say he, he just went from Judea to Galilee, but it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So here, let me just stop and give you a little bit of background around Samaria. So the Samaritans were a remnant of, na- of native Israelites that um, were not deported after the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And there's this age-old theological opposition, basically, between the Samaritans and the Jews. And basically what this opposition is about is that the Jews thought that they had to worship, that they must worship on this mountain, which is Gerizim. That's right. Oh, not the Jews. The Jews thought they had to worship on the one mountain, and the Samaritans thought they had to worship on another mountain. And then there was this debate about, basically, where should we worship? Like, are you worshiping on the right mountain? Am I worshiping on the right mountain? Is anybody worshiping on the right mountain? Kind of thing. And there was this, that's when the conflict started to start. Because when, when the Jews started, if you read in the book of Nehemiah, when the Jews started to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans actually put obstacles along their way to actually prevent the temple from being built. And then in retaliation to that, and also the Samaritans also, when there was a war between the Jews, they aided and helped the Syrians actually go to war with the Jews as well. Um, and then in retaliation to that, the, Samar- the Jewish high priest um, burnt um, the Samaritan temples on the Mount Gerizim. So there's this constant just conflict between the Jews and the Sam- Samaritans um, that we see as, um, in history. And it, it, it's at this point where there's this enmity and animosity between the Jews and the Israelites that Jesus steps into Samaria in the midst of this conflict. And that the if you can go to the map. So normally what people would do, because of this conflict that's happening between the Jews and the um, Samaritans, they would go around Samaria. Now, typically, it would take about three days to travel if they went directly through Samaria. And then it would take seven days because of their problems with the Samaritans to go around. So can you see, they, had like, they went out of the way to not go to Samaria because of the conflict that was happening there. But Jesus, on the other hand, says what it says in the scripture, but he had to pass through Samaria. So that's something very important that we need to realize. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? So obviously we see in the Gospels that Jesus um, only did what he saw his father doing, right? We see in John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So Jesus was directed by the Holy Spirit to pass through Samaria because clearly there was something that, because it says in scripture that Jesus only does what the Father does, right? So clearly he was going to Samaria because God the Father was busy with something, but that will come later. (laughs) Um, And then we look at, okay, so then we go to verse five. And then, oh, well, not verse five, rather, verse six. So it says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. So there's something that we need to see here is that, um, so typically when the, like women in, in Israelite, the Israelite women and things, went to fetch water, they generally did it very early in the morning or in the evening. But there was something different about this woman. She came at the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour is like midday. It is very hot. Nobody goes to the well to get water. Why would you? You'll probably pass out and have a heat stroke because it's very hot. But why was this woman 
at the well at the sixth hour of the day. That says something about this woman. It says that maybe she possibly wasn't popular in her community. It says that she maybe wasn't welcome to go with the other woman in the morning or the evening. But what was it about that woman that she didn't go in the morning or the evening? And Jesus will later reveal that to us. Um, but there's another thing that we can see in the scriptures that Jesus cares about the outcasts. He cares about those that community doesn't care about. He cares about the ones that are hurt. He cares about the ones that are on the outskirts of things. So he went to meet the Samaritan woman in the sixth hour of the day in the scorching hot sun at the well. He could have gone in the morning, he could have gone in the evening, but he went in the sixth hour. Then in verse 10 we see, Jesus ans answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So obviously Jesus was tired and he asked the Samaritan woman for some water. And then she didn't actually realize who was asking her for water, did she? No. Jesus him himself is the gift. Um, we see that in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his son. So Jesus is the gift himself. But the Samaritan woman in that moment didn't realize who was actually asking her for water. She just thought it was a random Jewish person just walking around asking for water. Um, but had she had known who was the one that was actually asking her for water, she would have realized that physically Jesus was the one that was asking for water. But spiritually, they, their roles were actually reversed. Because in actual fact, the Samaritan woman was the needy one, not Jesus. But she didn't realize that. Um, then the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now what's interesting here is Jesus had come to the well to get water. So we see this contrast between a well and what Jesus is saying to the woman. If you had known that I could give you living water, he says, sorry, let me just find that scripture. It says, I will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, which speaks about, so there's a, different, there's a contrast here being made between a well, which is where they went to physically get the water, and a spring that Jesus is speaking about. So if you look at uh, the next slide. Okay, cool. So you can see the difference between a spring and a well. Now a well, there's nothing going inside a well. It's just water. It's stagnant water just sitting there, right? Whereas if you look at a spring, there's something coming in and there's something going out. And Jesus, it's very specific that there's, there's the picture of the well and then Jesus introduces the picture of the spring because this speaks about being saved and being unsaved and being, being unsaved versus being saved and being filled with the water. When we don't know who Jesus is, when we, 
when we are kind of walking around not knowing, not being saved, not knowing who Jesus is, we're actually dead. We actually like that well. We're stagnant. There's no new things that can come in. There's no freshness. There's no living things that can actually, there's no living. Does it make sense? But when we, beca- when we, when we are saved, when we get full to the Holy Spirit, we become like the spring. We become living. We become active. Something is going in. Something is coming out. We're not stagnant anymore. Does it make sense? Do we want to be a spring or do we want to be a well? Hallelujah. <laughs> so water in the Bible represents that abundant life that Jesus has for us. So therefore, when we get saved, we become that spring. We become, we, firstly, when we get saved and we get filled with the Holy Spirit, we receive that living water that Jesus has given us. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He says, you will become a spring from which other people can see that living water, from which other people can come and drink that living water as well. So he doesn't just stop by making you a well full of water. He says, in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That is what Jesus is giving us. He's not giving us a well. He's giving us, he's making us a spring. Um, But the Samaritan, unfortunately, still doesn't get it. She's like, uh, but you have nothing to draw this water from. And oh, and then she says, um, but tell me where I can get this water from. So because if I, then if I can get this water, then I don't have to come to this well. I don't have to be embarrassed every time I have to come at the sixth hour. I can just drink the water, the water that you have for me instead of coming here and being a ridicule of community because I can get this water from Jesus and I don't have to come to this well. And she still thinks that he's speaking about physical water. And then in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and w- the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So here, <laughs> here we see the Samaritan trying to take the focus off herself. Jesus is like, uh, so who, where's your husband? And she's like, I don't have, I don't have a husband. And it's like, oh, you're right, you have five husbands. And then immediately she kind of feels like, oh, this man knows my stuff. <laughs> And she immediately tries to take the focus off herself. And she's like, oh, yes, I, Jesus, I perceive you're a prophet. You, you, yeah, you're talking about worship and our fathers worship on this mountain. And, but you say that Jerusalem is a place. So you can see what she's doing. She's actually trying to take you because she's feeling exposed. She's feeling um, uncomfortable and perhaps convicted. So she's trying to take that focus off herself. And how often do we, often, do, we do that in our own lives? Even like when Jesus is wanting to speak to us about something that's maybe difficult, that's maybe uncomfortable for us to deal with in our lives. We're like, we, we actually want to shift the focus onto seemingly bigger things like, oh, look at that person. And oh, look at how I had quiet time today. But actually Jesus is just wanting to speak to you personally about what's going on in your heart. Why? Because he loves us. Jesus didn't expose a Samaritan woman just to expose her. I believe that he, he was speaking to her because he was wanting to heal her. He was wanting to bring that healing water to her, that gift that he is. But she missed it. 
she was like, no, 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 I'm not getting there. I'm not going to talk about my husbands and my five other husbands because obviously this woman was a harlot. She was a prostitute. So if somebody comes to you and shares with you the deepest things of your heart and tells you what you sin, whatever, you're going to be like, peace, I'm out. I'm not going to be about this life. I'm just leaving. But Jesus wanted to give her everlasting life. And Jesus knows what's in our hearts, and we cannot hide from him. Um, and this is where the story shifts to worship. So even though she was taking the focus off herself, it's actually where Jesus wanted to go with it. Um, and when we worship God, God sees us. I think one of my favorite like, kind of characteristics about God, it says that he's the man with fire in his eyes. And, and sometimes we can look, hear that and think of it as it's condemning and it's, he can see everything and he just wants to tell us all our sin and whatever. But those eyes with fire in his, the, but those eyes that have fire in it are actually eyes of love are actually eyes that, that want to draw you in, that actually want you to see God and, and have relationship with Him. It's not eyes that want to condemn or pinpoint your sin and be like, this is what you did. No. He wants to draw us into a place of relationship and love with those eyes of fire. And it's the same thing in Romans 2 verse 4. It says, um, but it's paraphrasing now, but it's the kindness or the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the fact that Jesus pinpoints our sin or my accountability, tells, accountability partner tells me, this is all the things that you did wrong. It's, out of the, it's when we come to God in worship and we encounter Him, we encounter the goodness and the kindness of God, that is what leads us to repentance because we realize, God, I need you. I have all this stuff, but you are the one that can come and take it away. That is what Jesus is saying. And then verse 21, um, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such, seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now this is about five verses, from verse 21 to 26. The word worship appears ten times in like five verses. So clearly Jesus is trying to tell us something. <laughs> so worship is the main sort of theme of this of this whole encounter that he's having with the Samaritan woman. It is the main, it is, the, it is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about worship. It's the main theme. And the issue that the Samaritan brought up, um, which we spoke about earlier, the conflict, the theological opposition between which mountain they need to worship on, um, the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, um, related directly to the place of worship. But Jesus is saying in this passage that a time is, will come and is now come when our worship will not be limited to a certain place or time. That is what Jesus is saying. Worship doesn't start or end on a Sunday when we have an hour of worship and we're like, hmm, I've worshiped, let's go. Jesus, the conflict that she brought up is what, what, is, what God is actually saying is that our worship, 
the time is coming and is now when our worship will not be limited to this building. When our worship will not be limited to going to church. Obviously, church is good. Go to church. But it's not limited to that. Our worship, be, the be all and end all is not Sunday 30 minutes set of worship. It's a life of worship. You know, other religions are very limited to locations. They're very limited to going to a temple to worship. Um, but Jesus is not restricted to a temple or to a mosque or to a building. We have access to Jesus and the Holy Spirit in every moment of every day. We don't have to come into a church building to worship God. I mean, we can worship together and it's great when we come together corporately and it's, it's exciting and there's just such a fire and a, and a, and a, and a, and a kind of like a coming together of faith that we all put together and we're like, yeah. But it's not limited to that. Um, verse 22 says, You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. And the thing is that you cannot truly worship God unless you know Him. Because if you don't know who God is, then who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping an idea of God that you have? Are you worshiping who the pastor told you God is? Are you worshiping who I told you God is? Are you worshiping perhaps who your parents maybe told you who God is? I believe that we can only truly worship God when we know who God is. Not from our neighbor, not from, what we, from other people, but truly for myself, when I know who God is, I can truly worship Him. And it's, it's incredible, like, we spoke, like obviously other religions are, uh, are bound to certain locations and things like that, but also in every single other religion, and I study religion, so I know quite a bit about this now. Yeah. <laughs> um, every single other religion, they cannot truly know who God is. They cannot truly say that they know their God personally. I can guarantee you that. I grew up in a Hindu um, from a, in a Hindu family and every single person that I've been exposed to, my grandmother, they don't even know why they do the things that they do. But the thing is because they don't actually know who they're worshiping. Um, they can't know their gods personally. They cannot have this relationship that Jesus wants to have with us, which we have the privilege of being able to have. We have the privilege of being able to know God personally. I mean, I can sit in my room and have a conversation with God. And he can show me the things in my heart and I can share what's on my heart and we can have fellowship with each other. And I believe there's no other religion on this face of this planet that can do that. Um, we cannot truly worship God if we don't know who he is. Um, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to trust that, that he revealed himself to us. We need to seek him so that, he, so that we don't just worship him because of what we think he is but on out of revelation on who God shows you that he is and I love the scripture this is one of my favorite scriptures is revelations 1 verse 12 to 16 it says and this is who Jesus is I mean this is amazing I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, 
and his eyes were, were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all his brilliance. This is who Jesus is. It's not the idea that we paint in our head or I think Angus Buchan said it at its time. It's not our buddy-buddy Jesus and like, ooh, you know. I think sometimes we actually forget who God is. We kind of go on with our life forgetting actually that God is God. That this is who Jesus is. He is the man with fire in his eyes whose face outshines the brightest sun. This is the Jesus that we worship. Do we know this Jesus? Can we say in our hearts that we know this Jesus? Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what's so cool? Like in my life, there's moments where I've really tasted of God. There's moments where I've had encounters with God and I'm like, this is who God is. I've seen his faithfulness. I've tasted and I've seen that he is good in my life. And then there are moments when I doubt God. And there are moments where there's trauma, there's circumstances that are like, oh, is God even here? But then I, I can remember or I can remember those moments when I've tasted and seen that God is good. And I'm like, actually, despite what's going on right now, God is faithful. Why? because I've tasted. God is good. Why? Because I've seen. God is patient. Why? Because he's been patient before. He's a God of love. He is who he says he is. Um, I think we were having a conversation with the School of the Nations people um, on Friday, I think. We were talking about what causes people to actually um, turn away from the faith. Like, what causes them to not want to, you know, follow Jesus anymore? And we spoke a lot about like, oh, probably it's like trauma. I think people spoke about it being like trauma that causes you to walk away from God and things like that. But I believe that once you've tasted and seen that God is good, you can never truly say that God is not God anymore because you've tasted. And no matter what happens in our life, no matter what trauma happens or circumstances, I can say, yes, this is happening now, but this is who God is. And I can put my trust in that. Um, verse 23 says, um, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So earlier we spoke about um, why Jesus had to go to Samaria. Remember? Do you remember, remember that? It said in, the, in verse 4, And He had to go through Samaria. And we said that Jesus only did what He saw the Father doing. So what we see in this scripture is that the, f the Father is seeking such people to worship Him in spirit and truth. So Jesus does only what He sees the Father doing. And here we see that the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus, because He does only what He sees the Father doing, He is also seeking true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And what Jesus was doing in this point is what He was he was doing on behalf of his father because that's what his father was seeking at the time and he's still seeking today. True worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And we often talk about that. Oh yes, we need to worship in spirit and truth. But what does it actually mean to worship in spirit and truth? 
so let's let's talk about spirit first. So in verse um, 20, I'll find it out. It says that God is spirit, and therefore we need to worship him in spirit. It means, basically worshiping in spirit me, means that we worship God from a place of faith. From a place of believing who he is and who he says he is. Sometimes when we think about we need to worship God in spirit, it can sometimes sound very abstract. But it is a little bit abstract at times because God is spirit. When we, become, when we are saved, we become regenerate men and women whose spirit is alive, right? And because God is spirit, we have to come to God from that place primarily, from, from our spirit um, and believing who God says he is. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God is spirit and therefore we must worship in spirit. Um, our worship doesn't depend solely on our emotions. And I know and, and I, I'm a feeler. I feel a lot in worship. I cry a lot. I experience God's love. But I know that primarily... I cannot allow or be led by my emotions when I, go, when I worship God because God is primarily spirit. And if in my spirit I choose to worship God, my emotions will follow suit because that's just how it's going to work because we're spirit um, and our emotions can follow. And that's so, so often like sometimes we, ha we come to church, for example, or we worship or we want to worship God because we feel great and he did something really amazing. And he did all the things that I asked him to, or asked of him in prayer. So yes, I'm super fired up to worship and I'm super excited to worship. And then we're like, yeah, I'm going to worship. And then there's times where we actually really not at a good place. We're really not feeling it. We're really feeling sucky. We may be feeling dis disappointed. We're actually in a place of doubt even. But in that moment, we have to choose to worship God because God is spirit and we worship from our spirit first and primarily. And we need to allow, the, our God, we need to, allow God to, um, to work with us so that we don't allow our emotions to rule us. That we allow our spirit man to rule over us first because that is what's the most important. Everything else will follow in with that. We need the Holy Spirit to worship in spirit because spirit, Holy Spirit. <laughs> we cannot worship God in spirit without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. It, you, you physically can't do it. You can't be like, okay, today I'm going to cause myself to worship God. God, we need the Holy Spirit to worship God. Worshiping in spirit means that... We hear from God and we respond in worship with that. Um, worshiping in spirit also means that we are no longer bound to a location. Because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we don't have to go to a idol to go worship. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, which means we have access to the Holy Spirit literally wherever you are, whenever you want to. Because He's with you all the time. When we have that relationship with the Holy Spirit, we can fellowship with Him at literally any time of the day. Every moment, actually, of the day, we should 
actually be fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit desires to fellowship with us all day, every day. <laughs> that's, what he, that's his desire. Um, and because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can, when we're walking to class, we can worship God. When we're sitting and doing dishes, we can worship the Lord. When we're mocking our test papers, we can worship God because the Holy Spirit is with us. Therefore, we do not have to be bound to a specific place, a building, or a time. And then secondly is truth. So we worship God in spirit and now in truth. Truth speaks about knowing what we worship or knowing who we worship. Like Jesus said to the Samaritan, you, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. So worshiping in truth means that we know who we worship. We know what we worship, which is Jesus. Do you know who you worship? John 8 verse 31 to 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know what's so incredible about worshiping God for who he is in truth? It's that it's actually liberating. <laughs> really. It really is liberating because you're worshiping God for who he is. There was a time in my life when I kind of, well, obviously I grew up in church, so I went to church and went to, you know, just did church um, and worshiped God because I had to worship God because that's what I did. And then when I came to university, I was introduced to God the Father, which is a different characteristic of God that I didn't know before. And when I had a revelation for myself about who, about God the Father, it changed the way that I worshipped. It changed how I approached God in worship. It was no more a thing of obligation, but it was a thing of joy and freedom that it brought when I knew this is who God is. And the only way that we can know God is by spending time with Him, by spending time in His Word, by spending time in church, um, by speaking to Him, getting to know Him. Um, it really is liberating. Like, my encouragement to every single person is to really ask God to reveal more of Him in your life. Reveal, reveal more of who He is. Read the Word. The Word is... Is Jesus, is, the word of God is so powerful because it shows us who God is. And as we read it, we, 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 we learn the truth of who God is for ourselves, not opinions of other people and what people think God is or, or their ideas of God, but we learn who God is for who he really is. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Scripture is very clear. The only way to worship God is in spirit and truth. There's no other way around it. We can't worship in any other way but in spirit and truth. Um, and I'm going to ask the band to come up now. Worship is our response to God revealing himself to us. The more he reveals himself to us, the more it, we respond to that. When we realize that God is a father, we respond to that. When we realize that God is love, we respond to that. And that is worship. And practically what that means is, is that we do it through internally being humbled by who God is continuously. Because when we know who God is, we, the, the greatness of who God is, we, we're so aware of our 
finiteness and how and our littleness in comparison to God. And we, be, we, we, we then become internally humble. We also become externally revering that we, 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 we come to God with reverence and awe. And then lastly, we become actively serving out of that place of, out of that abundance from worshiping God. Humility, reverence, and service, all these three go very much hand in hand. Nothing is separate from each other. God is spirit, and we need to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is looking, or the Father is looking for true worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth. We need to know who God is for us to worship him in spirit and in truth. We're going to quickly watch a video, um, but we're not, it's not really a video, so I, I want you to just engage with God for, for a couple of minutes and just ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. of a man just speaking some just who God is and I just want you to engage with it just close your eyes if you need to um, just engage with God and, and just the words in the video once we have the video <laughs> <laughs> 